Welcome to the Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network, proudly celebrating 16 years. Here's your host, Luke McCormack. Good afternoon and welcome to this special edition of the Federal Executive Forum celebrating 16 years of profiling IT mission programs in the federal government. This is our ninth annual Profiles and Excellence Program, which will be coming to you from the virtual studios of WTOP and the Federal News Network. I'm Luke McCormack, and during today's show, we will discuss IT program success stories at numerous government agencies and hear from the key leaders making them happen. With me on today's show are Raj Iyer, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Army, Sonny Bagwala, Assistant Commissioner and Chief Information Officer, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Keith Jones, Chief Information Officer, Department of State, Kevin Cox, Deputy Chief Information Officer, Department of Justice, Jonathan Album, Federal CTO Service Now. Nick Saki, Principal Technology Strategist at Pure Storage. And Chris Perry, Technology Strategist, CTO Office, BMC Software. All right, we're gonna talk about the state of the state and uh, we're gonna start with you, Raj, and ask you uh, to discuss your best accomplishments and top for your top mission programs that you wanna outline. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. So uh, to say that 2021 uh, was an unprecedented year would be an understatement. And so before we talk about accomplishments uh, during this this year, it's really kind of important to put, uh, you know, some context around, you know, what the year was for the United States Army. So um, obviously, everybody, you know, you're all tracking, um, you know, our retrograde of, uh, you know, operations from Afghanistan. And as we were winding down operations there, that's the one that's been, you know, most public. Um, and open to media and obviously open to a lot of controversy and discussion. But, you know, behind the scenes though, you know, what we saw in 2021 was the fact that the United States Army had to support, um, you know, through the National Guard, uh, civil unrest all over the United States uh, from the nation's capital to many of the state governments. Um, our National Guard was uh, busy working, putting out wildfires in the West to hurricanes in the South and, and everywhere across the world. Uh, our National Guard and our reservists were busy, um, you know, uh, jabbing needles and arms for COVID. And, uh, uh, and while all of that was going on, um, we saw the world change around us to the point where uh, we see now China as a facing threat. Um, and we see, um, you know, aggression from, from Russia. And, and that's just most recent news. But none of this has been, you know, things that just happened overnight. These are things that have been, you know, cooking for the last, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and and so so the, the geopolitical environment is is you know drastically dramatically different from you know where things were just a few years back. Um, now put that in the context of what happened with COVID and uh, everybody in, you know the government workforce moving remote, um, you know put a huge stress on you know in terms of how we we we've known we've traditionally operated as an army, um, and and so that is the. That is the that was the environment um, you know under which you know I assumed the position of the CIO just over a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, the CIO's office, by the way, was a brand new office in the in the Department of the Army. So uh, so I was brought in almost like a you know uh, an entrepreneur um, you know leading the establishment of a new office. And to me, you know, with that background, with that context, it was really important to kind of balance um, the near term priorities and ongoing operations with the reason why the office was stood up in the first place, which is for us to be forward leaning and uh, for us to keep up with the, with the changing pace of technology 
And, and so that's, that's a hard balance because, you know, you, you know, you can be focused on a five-year, 10-year horizon and then say, hey, I'm just not going to worry about what's happening today. And, and so, so it was, uh, like I said, uh, 2021 is truly an unprecedented year. Um, and my expectations going in were uh, really, I, I mean, it was just, you know, I, there were obviously hundreds of things that were going on all at the same time, but it was important to pick and choose what I wanted to prioritize. And it was very clear that if we decided to prioritize everything, nothing would get prioritized. And, um, and so we did a couple of things. So, and this is, you know, deliberate decisions we made early on. The first of which was, you know, given that we are a new office and a new position, it was really important for us to establish what our strategy was because you know the best the best execution without a strategy or a vision you know is just is is not a good recipe and it's a dream absolutely <laughs> you got it it was it was it would be a dream without a strategy and a vision and so um so despite the fact that you know it, it was very tempting to jump into all kinds of ongoing work uh, it was important to set that strategy. And so we spent uh, you know, the first half of the year really building out the Army's first digital transformation strategy uh, and associated with it uh, a number of implementation plans. Um, there was one for cloud, there was one for data, um, uh, one around zero trust, and then one around how we were going to modernize the network. And so, so we focused on these priorities, um, and then we identified, you know, near-term um, targets and you know uh, opportunities that we were going to go after. So, on the cloud front, um, the the big success in 2021 was us establishing a fully accredited uh, cloud environments, um, you know, with uh, with with two of the hyperscalers, uh, Amazon as well as Azure. And uh, in both unclassified and classified environments, and that was you know critical because it was not just about moving apps to the cloud, but for us in the army, it was about us leveraging um, the cloud as a warfighting platform. And this is how mm -hmm. we were going to you know exchange operational data and mission data across you know networks from both tactical to the enterprise. And so, so we established that those accredited environments. We actually were successful in uh, migrating over three hundred systems to the cloud just in one year. Um, that included, by the way, three of our most complex SAP ERP systems, and uh, and this is you know one that you know we were very cautious about. We were concerned, and we but we did a lot of planning and and uh, the work that went into it, um, and and so uh, and so that was uh, so that got a lot of credibility behind us, a lot of wind behind our backs to you know to let people know that hey, cloud is real, and we can actually modernize and migrate at scale in the army. Um, the second um, was really around, um, you know, starting to modernize our network, because at the end of the day, when we are collecting such large volumes of data today, um, as we are, I mean, every one of our weapon system platforms is now censored to, uh, you know, to, uh, to collect and, 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 prop and, and integrate data. Um, it was really important for us to make sure we had the right networks in place. Um, and, and so uh, we established the concept of the unified network um, that brings together, you know, literally 42 different networks uh, right here in the United States um, and put them under a, a unified construct to enable interoperability and that seamless exchange of information um, across our networks. And hey, that Raj, was if I may, let me let me ask you to pull in your, your third one there. And then I want to bring these other folks in to uh, to, to roll through some of these accomplishments. Yeah, and, and and the third one was we wanted to make sure that we gave our users, um, you know, the uh, the collaboration capabilities to to work in a remote environment. So we established our Army 365, which is our Office 365 environment, as a software as a service um, that enabled our users to collaborate, you know, in 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 a remote environment. So so it was it was a it was a good balance across you know being strategically focused as well as you know being operationally focused uh, near term. And uh, I'd say we've done a tremendous job. Uh, 
uh, in year one. Sonny, tell us about uh, how the year's gone. No, it's uh, as, as uh, thank you. First of all, good morning, and thank you very much for the opportunity to share some of the great things our team has done. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, obviously, been doing this for 36 years, and as a five-time CIO and twice as a department CIO, this one is my first year as well here in this uh, full role in official capacity, and then of course another nine months in acting. Uh, I'll just say that uh, CBP, just like Raj said, uh, you know. We all are obviously a 24 by 7, 365 mission, uh, operating at that speed of mission. And I think uh, this year had the biggest unprecedented challenges, and yet I think this was our best year in terms of accomplishment. And that just is a, is a testament to the team on the government and contractors working together. If you think about it in retrospect, the largest global pandemic and operating completely remotely and seamlessly all throughout, no, no worries as the largest law enforcement organization in the United States and one of the largest in the world. Second, the largest border surge in 21 years, and we handled that. Third, the largest airlift in history with Operation Allies Welcome that Raj talked about. Obviously, uh, CBP played a big role in that uh, in that uh, operation, and I'll talk about that as the biggest accomplishment that I'd like to just focus on as one of the many accomplishments. Fourth, fourth, uh, you know, we had one of the largest cyber events that CBP withstood and did not was not affected by that. Uh, you know, in terms of supply chain and solar winds, so we were successful in blocking that and not being affected by it. And while we're doing all this, you know, I mean, due to COVID, the travel fee collection was less. So we had also budget shortfalls. So when people get together and do this and with all these four things coming together, I've never seen that in my 36 years and I've been in some uh, pretty important roles. That's I'll just say that I'm, scenarios there, Sonny. Yeah. If you think about those four scenarios uh, and to compliment to again what Raj was saying, and I'm sure my colleagues will say the same thing, is that this shows the strength of the federal worker the U.S. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, spirit that we are all about, and 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 how we all banded together, and when we were just challenged, we all came came together and 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 showed our best as a country and also as a government, a U.S. government. So I'm really proud of that. I think the top accomplishment I'll say amongst all of these was that we were asked to do this airlift uh, and support this Operation Allies Refuge and Operation Allies Welcome, you know, in the in the August timeframe, if you would. And so we uh, immediately uh, made sure that we can, uh, you know, process run. I think overall we processed over 85,000 folks who have come in in various capacities. Then you have to make sure they're all vetted to make sure they're safe. And, and we are safe in terms of who's coming in and, and who's what. And so with that, we partnered with all the other agencies, including DOD. And then how do we actually make sure we're comporting with all the laws and, and making that happen? We use facial recognition uh, to... Uh, to allow us to process people faster. And in fact, uh, uh, the Joint Chief said that it was, uh, uh, it was most, one of the most amazing technologies that they've seen and, and were complimenting us in one of the meetings. So I think that, uh, as was relayed to us by the DHS CIO, Eric Heisen, who's also doing a great job. So I think this we set up an OIT incident commander uh, uh, center, uh, command center on a 24 by 7 basis. We staffed with OIT staff, which were just sort of making sure that everything was, uh, you know, being done with volunteers who, to make sure timely and concise communications was, was being done. We did application coding and programming so that we were able to, um, you know, from the field, that means, you know, from uh, what we call the lily pads, which were some of the uh, DOD locations and other locations where the airlift people were brought into first, first zone of safety and then process them there. If, the, if, if our agents and officers saw something in the field, we were able to use our agile SDLC and software development to deploy capabilities within a day or two. I mean, they had capability on the phone. They said, oh, can you do this? Sure, boom. And then send it back on the mobile phone with the facial recognition and two-second uh, adjudication on, on certain uh, capabilities that we've deployed. 
was amazing. So we supported obviously overseas locations with necessary IT equipment. We actually had people go over there and, 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 and then we had good partnership, uh, you know, with the uh, army and other folks who, who led us into their bases and made sure that as a government, we were all working together, mm-hmm. setting up net- networks and communicating with each other to process these uh, 80, you know, tens of thousands of nationals. We developed uh, this functionality, as I mentioned, to query Afghan refugees by photo and biographic data. So we were also then enabling TSA agents to identify domestic travelers using the CBP-1 app against the, uh, the Operation Allies Refuge uh, targeting platform to make sure make sure the refugees boarding passes were checked against the results of photo or biographic query. We uploaded manifest when the airline carriers could not send them through the CBP system. So we provided continuous support to OFO so that we can uh, support the creation of foreign sites to, to vet travelers uh, boarding re- uh, uh, these uh, repatriation or repatriation flights. We did a data share interface between CBP and USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services for non-immigrant populations to create uh, alien files, a file with specific OER information like facial recognition data. So this expanded the data sharing practice, greatly reducing the intake time and facilitating more rapid pro- uh, process for refugees. It was quite unprecedented. We worked with DOD in data sharing, which greatly expedited uh, the processing. In fact, we had an automated daily admissions report and an interactive dashboard providing real-time information on data, including Afghan unaccompanied minors, because a lot of these were children uh, who may have uh, you know, not been there with parents or, or other. And so you know, to, to handle that, it was a humanitarian thing. And then we also uh, you know, deployed personnel to the six overseas DOD locations and established a data network presence, like I mentioned, with CBP officers and US Border Patrol agents to conduct initial processing of all of these and expanded this to 24-7 at five US airports so that we can process these very fast. Lastly, I'll just say this. I have some people who were also immigrants to this country who are from Afghanistan and other people who are immigrants to this country, proud to be US citizens. They went and volunteered to do translation services and other things, you know, and it's personal. And that's what makes America great in my view, that we welcome these folks. We honored our obligation and we served and it was really emotional for people that they actually saw this through. And I was there also at a lot of these locations uh, in, in, in the United States, welcoming these folks or seeing how the system and process is working. And I can tell you, it's very satisfying to be a US government employee and to be a citizen of the United States uh, doing this kind of mission. It was something that we'll remember forever. Keith, um, you've been over there just about a year, not quite, I think 10 months if I, if I got my math right. And uh, a lot of moving parts over there at State Department. I know you're moving and shaking. Tell us about uh, the accomplishments, what you've sort of gotten yourself into over there and how it's going. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, it's been, uh, actually it's been closer to a year as of January 21st. Right, right. Uh, 21st on the ground, but mm-hmm. certainly um, me coming back into government after having an abbreviated re- retirement from DHS, it's been really, really uh, a great role to serve in. And I tell you the work, I couldn't be pleased uh, any better with uh, the workforce that I have and the commitment that they have. But first, you know, let me start off and talk a little bit about the vision that I have for our U.S. diplomats, because really everything flows flows from that. Really want to see our diplomats be regarded as tech-savvy diplomats and really the State Department moving to have a reputation for applying technology effectively to make sure that we're influencing and changing people's lives. We want to utilize uh, technology to empower people and advance democracy and protect human rights abroad. Uh, with that said, I think when I think about what uh, we accomplished in 21, you know, I being the second uh, political appointee as a CIO there at State Department, and, and just imagine coming in, 
not really having a State Department background, but really understanding and connecting with folks and uh, a totally different culture uh, and making sure, you know, I, I understand how things work and taking the time to do that, really working my way across the department, reaching out to uh, assistant secretaries, a lot of actings in place. Uh, as the year went on, you know, we got more uh, permanent individuals in their seats, which really helped, but at least the mission kept going forward. Uh, and when you look at it uh, from looking at telework, you know, State Department was more of a fortress when it came to mobility and things like that. There was no uh, remote access, no remote work uh, by our diplomats. And, and so you talk about continuing to enable a workforce of over 100,000 users uh, and, and at the same time having to increase our uh, vigilance and protecting our networks from cyber intrusions. I mean, we have a global, global presence around the world. Uh, our diplomats, you know, around there's always something going on 24 by 7. We, we had tough situations in Kabul. Uh, Addis uh, Ababa and Khartoum, ranging from what full-scale evacuations to military coups. I mean, some of the toughest environments one could imagine for making sure our IT services continued unabated and are discontinued when operations need to be halted. Uh, this thing about Afghanistan, in particular, uh, a huge foreign, uh, foreign policy challenge for us uh, mm -hmm. this year. But I tell you, the, the coordination, the work of our teams, uh, uh, and this is not only within state, but also uh, working across government. Uh, and we had to uh, develop uh, an application where, where we helped, you know, really uh, connect everyone together. And, and we were able to leverage that application working with uh, DHS. We passed it on to DHS eventually, but we had a lot of great work. Uh, I, I recall even... The last days of, uh, in Afghanistan, we were having to send individuals in from Washington to Afghanistan to really help out as, as we close that out. Uh, but, but really some tough situations. Our operations folks uh, were operating. It, it was a 24 by 7 cadence uh, and heartbeat where many of our folks uh, didn't, you know, were getting probably limited hours of sleep uh, given the situation that was going on. Everyone uh, everyone on calls, making sure we were all engaged. And at the same time, uh, looking at uh, cyber, cyber incidents that were ongoing. Uh, and, and as you may know, or uh, others may not know, you know, the State Department is the most targeted department when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, where adversaries, adversaries would really love to get into the State Department, understand right. what's going on, whether it's a, a treaty, whether it's trade secrets or whatever. Uh, negotiations and tactics. Uh, I mean, always a, a constant battle for us in, in making sure that we're always protecting our environment. I mean, when you look at another accomplishment, I think our ATL backlog, I mean, we were able to reduce our ATL backlog. State Department has had a, a tough challenge around that in recent years. And, and really just bringing team focus on eliminating that backlog and getting more to uh, a, a very good cadence, bringing in some various technologies to support that. Uh, our removal of 90% uh, of obsolete software and hardware across the department going on with that. Uh, and early in my tenure, we launched Bureau Scorecards where we started looking at uh, what programs were accomplishing and where they stood from a cybersecurity perspective. Uh, we introduced cyber sprints uh, where, where we were really ensuring that 
we were uh, driving cyber hygiene across the department. Uh, and then, you know, more importantly here, we have uh, our uh, constant changes in our leadership team. And I got to the point where now we have four new appointments to our senior leadership team, including a, a new principal deputy CIO, uh, two new deputy CIOs uh, onboarded uh, the uh, department's first uh, enterprise chief information security officer. And uh, more recently, onboarding our first ever chief diversity officer for the IRM Bureau. So really a lot of things going on. Uh, I think the uh, we introduced next generation passport uh, mid-summer and that's been going really well over there in, in council affairs. So just a, a lot of activity, a lot of work going on and really you know making sure that we're driving customer centricity across our organization. I wanna ensure that you know our folks start living that and start breathing that. So as we look to rebrand and invigorate our organization, that we're thinking customer uh, first across the board. And we're not thinking so much about what's going on solely in the Bureau, but what's going on for the department and what are we doing for the department to ensure that our diplomats have everything they need and, and are using technology effectively. But really Afghanistan was certainly the biggest challenge for us uh, and uh, the situation that we all can look back and be proud of. I had the opportunity to, to meet the last, you know, six or eight uh, information management staff uh, that were there in Afghanistan. They, they came in and, and uh, they, they met us at our uh, senior leadership offsite and it was a great moment for the department. So uh, that's, that's, I'll close there because I know we have to move on, but uh, certainly uh, lots of great things that came out of uh, uh, the department in 21, thanks. Right. That's been a, a, a heck of 11 months there. A lot of operational moving parts and congratulations on laying the tracks down and getting your leadership installed uh, throughout all of that, uh, all those various events. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Here's Walter Makish, Vice President of Federal at Pure Storage. For the second year in a row, the Gartner Magic Quadrant for primary storage arrays positions Pure Storage highest on ability to execute and farthest right on completeness of vision. It is all about managing the data. Pure is dedicated to transforming the complexities of government IT by delivering a modern data experience. Check out the Gartner Report and learn how Pure can help your agency reach its data potential at purestorage.com government. That's purestorage.com slash government. ServiceNow is proud to work with the DOD, transforming the operations of our national defense. ServiceNow's platform-as-a-strategy approach pulls data out of silos, desk drawers, and spreadsheets to introduce AI and machine learning capabilities. ServiceNow powers workflows that optimize data as part of day-to-day -day work, from identity resolution for improved security to delivering real-time data to the field to powering predictive maintenance. ServiceNow helps DOD use data as an operational advantage. Learn more at servicenow.com gov. Looking for ways to accelerate your IT modernization? Whether your mission focuses on cloud migration, DevOps capabilities, mainstreaming your mainframe, harnessing the Internet of Things, or all of the above, you want a secure, streamlined solution with low cost of ownership and fast time to value. Speed up your modernization mission, deliver successful software-as-a-service initiatives in the AWS GovCloud, and pave the way to innovation with the help from BMC, the trusted end-to-end -end enterprise solutions leader for IT operations and service management. Visit bmc.com backslash federal to learn more. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Uh, we have a special show today. We're talking about profiles and excellence. 
talking specifically about uh, major accomplishments over the last year, Kevin. You've been recently installed over at uh, Department of Justice. Uh, however, you've got a lot of lineage there and have been there uh, uh, in the past for quite some time. I know that you, uh, uh, through the role that you had over at DHS, stayed very stitched together. Tell us about the accomplishments that are happening over at Department of Justice. Very good. Thank you, Luke. Uh, thank you to you and the other panelists and to uh, WTOP and, and Treasure Media. Appreciate this opportunity. So uh, coming in uh, to Department of Justice as the uh, Deputy Chief Information Officer, I'm working with Melinda Rogers, our Chief Information Officer, as well as our, all of our uh, components uh, within uh, DOJ, the different agencies and our industry partners as well. I uh, want to focus on two things uh, up front here in terms of what we've accomplished as, as we um, really take a look across the, the network landscape uh, out to the cloud. Uh, we continue to see the, uh, the increase in the threat uh, from our nation state and criminal actors uh, trying to uh, get access to our data, trying to um, cause harm to our mission areas. So one of the areas that we've really been focused on post solar winds is continuing to mature our cyber capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, three uh, things there that we're working towards. Uh, we've got the strategy in place for implementing zero trust networks. The idea there being that uh, no longer do we trust everything on the network or, or much of the network. Uh, now, uh, different applications, different systems. Uh, will be only open to those authorized uh, and, and those individuals and uh, in, in system connections will need to show that they are indeed authorized to access the data. So the second part of that is in order to do that identification and authentication of the users and, and then checking their authorization is making sure that we have a good uh, cloud uh, ready uh, identity provider uh, to help uh, and integrate in with that overall zero trust architecture. And then another key area that we're working with uh, DHS CISO on is the implementation of endpoint detection and response. Mm. Uh, the idea here that uh, we help better understand uh, the users coming in on the system, the activity happening happening on all, on all of our systems, uh, and also giving our security operations center more uh, capabilities in terms of incident response, uh, being able to uh, capture more data feeds uh, looking for anomalies from, from our uh, various adversaries. The other key thing, and I, I think this is applicable to uh, our other speakers here today, is as we uh, see progress being made uh, towards uh, COVID-19 vaccination, uh, we're working to prepare our workforce uh, for a broader return to the office. Uh, we'll probably be looking at, at some type of hybrid approach where we still uh, take advantage of remote work and telework, uh, looking at, at the accomplishments that we were able to make over the past two, two and a half years uh, in, in terms of uh, really being able to continue productivity and in, in some cases, increase productivity. So we wanna continue to support that, uh, but we also want to be able to get folks back in the office safely, make sure that our workforce is safe uh, so that we can do more uh, collaboration in the office and, and be able to support folks in the office uh, support folks working remotely uh, so that we can continue to move forward, continue to keep high productivity. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, the most important thing, make sure that we're supporting all of our mission areas. So uh, that's been a, a big effort to get the uh, COVID attestation system in place, uh, working to make sure that we can track who is vaccinated, uh, who has 
the appropriate uh, approvals and, and uh, to, to continue to work remotely. If they're not vaccinated, uh, get the testing regimes in place as appropriate. Uh, so that's been a, a real focus for us, a real accomplishment to get that in place, uh, getting up close to or actually over 98% in terms of being able to uh, get feedback from each and every uh, person within Department of Justice uh, in regards to where they stand on COVID attestation. And so we'll continue with that uh, and continue to uh, ensure that our workforce is safe as we uh, change our posture a bit over the next few months and, and come back and to continue to support the, the mission, uh, both from a, a remote standpoint, but also more in the office. Some other things uh, that we can touch upon later, uh, a focus on uh, artificial intelligence, uh, as well as our broader data management strategy. Thank you, Luke. Jonathan, uh, I know that ServiceNow has been right smack in the middle of a lot of these efforts uh, uh, that have been described by uh, the various uh, CIOs and deputy CIOs. Tell us about uh, the accomplishments uh, from the ServiceNow perspective and what you're seeing across there well, in regards uh, to whether it's Afghan COVID or anything else. Sure, well, uh, thanks Luke, appreciate being here. And you're right, we're playing a role across government in these big complicated initiatives that really require a whole government approach, which is a, which is a place where a tool like ServiceNow that connects people and things and systems and, and data really plays, a, plays an important role. But what I wanna talk about builds on what Kevin just was uh, describing, this process of getting people back into an office setting. Um, the future of work is gonna be hybrid. Uh, I think we've all you know, sort of uh, agreed to that, but getting people in safely is a big deal and it was easy to send everybody home. It's a lot harder to bring people back as we've, we've said in the past. And ServiceNow has been very focused on this uh, across government, working with a number of agencies around concepts of safe, safe workplaces from uh, seemingly simple things like an employee health screening or managing um, PPE at different locations to you know, more complex uh, capabilities around reserving desk space in a, in a new hoteling concept within, a, within an organization, or which sets you up for contact tracing if someone comes into the office and ends up unfortunately becoming, becoming ill. But where we focused uh, a lot of time and attention over the past uh, several months is on this vaccination status tracking that Kevin was just talking about. Well, we weren't you know, specifically working with Kevin and his team. We worked with many, many agencies, and I think over 300,000 federal employees you know, used ServiceNow as they implemented, as they uploaded their vaccination cards and uh, provided information to their to their agencies about their vaccination status or the requirement for uh, for some kind of exception, and you know that was a really uh, big endeavor for the whole for whole of the government, and it and it really I think demonstrated the need to be able to shift very quickly and have platforms like ServiceNow that support those those quick uh, changes. You know the uh, when the guidance came out that uh, federal agency employees were going to have to be fully vaccinated. Um, it was uh, it was a little unclear how that information was going to be tracked and as those requirements evolved and there was this recognition you have to upload your vaccine card and you know uh, it was no, no longer going to be an attestation and there was no testing option uh, we really saw agencies have to pivot you know very quickly as again as uh, kevin was describing it you know it's a seemingly simple workflow but oftentimes the devil's in the details you know, with these things. So how did you manage the vaccination process and the uh, review, um, you know, was, was something that ServiceNow was talking to uh, uh, 10, 15 agencies at a time about these concepts so we could build a 
vaccination status application that they all could use with very similar requirements. They had some capability uh, that everybody needed and, the, and also the ability to tailor it a little bit on a, on a per agency per agency basis. And you know, I, I have to give a lot of credit to um, the CIO Council, uh, Maria Rowe and a few others who uh, helped bring uh, us together as a federal IT community. So we could have our team, our ServiceNow team and our engineers talking to uh, several CIOs, several uh, uh, leaders inside these agencies that were doing this work so we could solve these problems together for everyone who wanted to use, uh, use our application. And again, we we're serving uh, over 300,000 uh, uh, feds at this point. So, you know, pretty large number relative to the, uh, to the, uh, to the population. And we, we found that um, to the, for the most part, you know, we had uh, a few approaches, you know, for this, we had some places that, you know, wanted to uh, build custom applications or, you know, develop a, a unique uh, workflow on the ServiceNow platform. But we, the majority of agencies we work with use the applications that that we built and they use them very successfully. And, you know, those, those applications are continuing to be uh, updated and approved. And we're, we're now working with, uh, you know, third parties to use AI ML techniques to validate that the cards that were uploaded are really cards. We're working with the uh, third parties to validate the QR codes that some agency employees are uploading because they don't want to share, uh, personal information through this process. So we're continuing to make these, um, you know, these, this vaccination status process better because it, these are requirements that, you know, aren't going to go away necessarily. While we've gone through the initial uh, upload and, and verification at, at most agencies, uh, the need to supply a vaccination card and prove your vaccination status is going to be a requirement that has to tie into onboarding. Um, you know, it's potential uh, for booster shots to become a requirement for for all employees, that becomes part of the definition of fully vaccinated. So we'll have to go through this process again, and we may have to go through it multiple times. So uh, th these are really important capabilities for agencies to be uh, very uh, to to very quickly, uh, you know, assess the status of their workforce, to bring on new employees, and to do it safely and securely. You know, we 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 fully expect a lot of people to be back in their offices at some point in in uh, calendar year 22. It's coming and. We want to do it in a way that uh, positions uh, federal employees to do their best work, to feel safe in their in their workspace, uh, so they can be engaged in their mission, do the hard work of, of the federal government, to do the big things mm -hmm. that we've uh, we've heard all of our uh, you know colleagues on this program talk about so far. Nick, you cannot do this without effectively storing this information. Uh, being able to retrieve it, doing it in a modern way, doing it in an efficient way. Give us an example of what you've seen across the uh, the whole of government, government uh, 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 a use case, if you will, in regards to accomplishment in, in, in respect to using your technology. Thanks, Luke. And it is inspiring to hear the breadth and diversity of data transformation. It really is, isn't it? Digital, yeah, it is. And the digital transformation uh, while operating live across all of these agencies. And I wanna, I wanna give my respect, admiration and kudos to the leaders on this call who've done incredible work under extraordinary circumstances for the past year. So I think that the two things that we looked at this past year in, in the public sector team of Pure Storage that we're really, uh, we're most proud of the work that we did with the Departments of Justice and Treasury this past year. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head Luke, this is, this is not about storage, it's about data service and the ability to leverage that data dynamically across an incredible breadth and range 
of localities, of infrastructure, uh, and of course, applications. Uh, everything that we've heard today really is driven by uh, what can we know and how effectively and efficiently can we make decisions? How can we resource our people? So delivering data to the point of need um, in a timely, relevant, and accurate fashion has been the, the principal uh, capability requirement for the entirety of the government since the outbreak of the pandemic. Uh, so these are the things we are most proud of. With the Justice Department and with the Treasury, we've been uh, partnered, partnering with two of their organizations to really help drive that modernization of their infrastructure to transform it into a powerhouse for digital decision-making and transformation. And that's really what, uh, you know, despite the name saying storage, what we're really focused on is, is dynamic data service infrastructure. And we've heard it across every agency's capability requirements and data strategy and digital posture statements for the past two years. Uh, they want to be able to deliver data, protect data, uh, secure their enterprise and help their people be more efficient and effective. That's exactly what we do. So if we think about that, not as storage, but as data service, the infrastructure necessary to drive that at this scale today across the breadth of architectures that are available, legacy, modern, cloud, on-premises and off-premises. That's where you, know, you see the enterprise infrastructure industry pivoting to is how do we unify all that in a simple, transparent and autonomous fashion to enable people to get work done instead of spending time working on their technology to get work done. The, you know, the analogy you've heard me deliver before is, uh, if we all had to rotate our tires and change our oil every morning, we'd never drive our cars. And yet that has been our experience with our enterprise infrastructure. When that's transforming tremendously with the advent of cloud platforms and modernized on-premises infrastructure, and really the delineation between where the data is and what it's on is being blurred uh, by the advent of you know, the modern data experience and technologies that are being adopted uh, by our agencies and by our government branches to enable that same experience that you see in commercial and enterprise organizations in the government today. So the pace of transformation and modernization of the government has been breathtaking. And that's largely driven, honestly, by the pandemic and the immediate need to respond uh, to a large scale crisis. And everybody on this call has been uh, tremendously effective and successful in steering their organizations to do that. And we've been very proud to partner with literally everybody on this call over the course of the past year. So thank you. It, it absolutely is an honor and we really do appreciate that. We're gonna take another short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Here's Walter Makish, Vice President of Federal at Pure Storage. For the second year in a row, the Gartner Magic Quadrant for primary storage arrays positions Pure Storage highest on ability to execute and farthest right on completeness of vision. It is all about managing the data, Pure is dedicated to transforming the complexities of government IT by delivering a modern data experience. Check out the Gartner Report and learn how Pure can help your agency reach its data potential at purestorage.com government. That's purestorage.com government. 
ServiceNow is proud to work with the DoD, transforming the operations of our national defense. ServiceNow's platform-as-a-strategy approach pulls data out of silos, desk drawers, and spreadsheets to introduce AI and machine learning capabilities. ServiceNow powers workflows that optimize data as part of day-to-day work, from identity resolution for improved security to delivering real-time data to the field to powering predictive maintenance. ServiceNow helps DoD use data as an operational advantage. Learn more at servicenow.com gov looking for ways to accelerate your it modernization whether your mission focuses on cloud migration devops capabilities mainstreaming your mainframe harnessing the internet of things or all of the above you want a secure streamlined solution with low cost of ownership and fast time to value speed up your modernization mission deliver successful software as a service initiatives in the aws gov cloud and pave the way to innovation with the help from bmc the trusted end-to-end enterprise solutions leader for it operations and service management visit bmc.com backslash federal to learn more welcome back to the federal executive forum on federal news network we're talking about well we have a special program actually today we're talking about profiles and excellence we were specifically going over um, major compliments this year. Chris, I'm going to throw it over to you at BMC Software. You are striped across the entire federal agency, actually the private sector as well. Give us an example of uh, something you'd like to highlight in regards to major compliments for this year. Absolutely, Luke, and, and thank you for being here. It's been an honor to be amongst this panel, hearing about some of the fantastic stuff these organizations have been really doing. Really awesome, isn't it? Really, truly, and and uh, especially around the work with Afghanistan, that's close to my heart. I had a deployment there 2013-2014, back wow. as recently as 2018, and uh, getting my interpreters back and getting my uh, my peers out safely has been a, a remarkable effort, so thank you, everyone, for your for your efforts there. And uh, from a BMC perspective, it's been a, it's been a transformational year. We actually concluded our largest acquisition in our 40-year history of uh, CompuWare. And if you're not familiar with them, they bring enterprise DevOps capabilities to bear that we now can support from mobile to mainframe. And this is a really big deal because we still rely pretty heavily on the mainframe. As much as we have these powerful cloud initiatives and as important as they are, we can't allow the mainframe, which still exists in our system, to be what's holding us back from making these transformations and being agile. So the CompuWare team really brought that capability there, as well as this customer-centric focus that really allows us to work really closely with, with our peers from the finance industry to the federal agencies and everyone in between that allows us to make sure that we're producing software quickly and effectively that solves the problems not just of today, but of the next 40 years as well. And so this has been a really big deal for us and a pretty, pretty major accomplishment. The other thing we've been working on is our own SaaS first initiative. We've been doing ITSM for a long time. And part of what's interesting are having a 40 year history is people might see of your software back in 2012 and think that's the software that you're still offering today. But when we take a look at what we do with BMC Helix, we didn't just take our monolithic software base that was on-prem hosted at AWS, put a new face on it and say, look, we innovated. We re-architected this from the ground up using modern microservice technology that allows us to really derive all the benefits of the cloud from scalability, reliability, and security. And so this is really a new piece of technology that we bring that allows us to compete across the board and allows us to be that ITSM vendor going forward over the next 40 years. And this success here, we've got you know, IL4 certification, we're FedRAMP moderate, and we've really been able to move a lot of the federal agencies already today to the cloud, as well as, again, our, our large uh, consumer base in, in the heavy, heavily regulated industries like insurance, like in finance. And, and we've been rewarded quite well with this. You know, you know, even Gartner has uh, selected us now as, as a leader for this ITSM. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big area that we're continuing to grow, continuing to invest in heavily and, and a major focus area for us. Really do appreciate it. I don't think uh, folks uh, could, could could really appreciate the lineage there. Uh, 
uh, of, uh, of this company and uh, what you've done for the, uh, the entire ecosystem. So thank you for that. Uh, we're going to go to priorities. I'm going to start with you, Raj. Top priority for the U.S. Army going forward. Yeah, so uh, for 2022, um, obviously we want to keep the same balance between supporting our users in the remote, you know, on the remote workforce, because we fully expect, I think, as all the other speakers said, that 2022 and probably beyond will continue to be us uh, working in some kind of a hybrid remote work environment. Uh, I think it is here to stay. I think you know we have 2021 has broken all kind of orthodoxies on you know productivity of the government workforce in a remote environment. Um, and uh, any middle manager that thinks that, hey, they can't get work done uh, from the remote workforce, uh, you know, somebody working from home is, uh, you know, is now lying to you, right? And, and so, uh, so it's, it's here to stay. And so what that means is we need to continue to focus on giving our users the tools and the capabilities they need to continue to be uh, productive, um, you know, uh, in this kind of hybrid workforce environment. So some of the things we're looking at are, um, you know, initially, uh, you know, when we uh, when we went remote, we actually gave our users a lot of capabilities around bringing their own personal devices, BYOD, um, and and actually, you know, a broader suite of collaboration tools. However, what we found uh, last year was we got to balance that against cybersecurity risks, and it was very clear that. Um, our adversaries had found a new attack vector um, with our employees working from homes. And, and so we had to actually take a step back. And, um, and so I came under a lot of criticism for, you know, taking away uh, some of the uh, tools that our users had initially. Um, yeah. But it was absolutely critical that we protect our network and the data on our network in a zero trust environment. So this year is going to be us maturing some of those technologies, getting to uh, a virtual desktop environment for our users. Um, more BYOD solutions, but all of this now in a fully accredited environment, uh, doing a lot of red teaming and things like that to make sure that the, the solutions that we're procuring are absolutely safe and secure. So that's one. The second uh, on the mission side is going to be continuing to scale our cloud, but this time it's going to be in tactical environments. And so as we are uh, getting ready to um, you know, increase our infrastructure and our footprint in areas like Guam, for example, and you've seen that as a um, as a key priority coming out of the uh, the strategy, the DoD strategy, um, and some of the risks, um, you know, in in the South Pacific, uh, mm -hmm. what we found was our infrastructure, our networks were uh, extremely stretched in that con you know contested environment in South Pacific. So so we're now extending our cloud environment, and and by the way, that includes the network. Uh, whether that's 5G or whether it's through, you know, commercial satcom, uh, working with companies like SpaceX, um, is how do we get those kinds of capabilities out rapidly um, and, and leveraging those commercial capabilities. So, so, that's, so that's a priority in, in, in the South Pacific. And then likewise in Eastern Europe, um, you know, as we establish more forward, forward operating bases uh, in Eastern Europe is how can we be much more expeditionary um, because when our units move, we wanna make sure that they can move, uh, our technology can move at that speed of war. Um, and traditionally how we acquire technology and how we have, you know, tried to build it and own it ourselves, uh, is just not agile um, and fast enough to meet that sure, requirement. Sure. So, so I think that's uh, those are just a couple of things that uh, we're focused on for twenty two. Obviously, putting all that in a zero trust environment is going to be absolutely critical. Sunny, top priority, number one priority for you this coming year. Yeah, so I, I'd say uh, you know just making sure that uh, we deploy things uh, securely with our mission applications. 
in, in service of uh, capabilities that our agents and officers need in a remote environment while being secure. So we sort of deploy at the speed of mission is what we talk about. And so those capabilities are really important. Actually, I have, there are six focus areas, mission applications, mission infrastructure, our trusted partnerships, our governance, uh, cybersecurity and business, CIO business operations. And what I mean by that is, is that as Raj mentioned, you know, we are also having, we are, we are ahead of uh, the cloud migration. We're already up at 45% uh, of our, our goal. And so in five years, we want to get all of it done. And as you know, uh, one of the largest civilian agencies, we, uh, you know, we have uh, things that are, uh, you know, processing a million passengers a day and, and processing more than that in cargo, double that, you know, in cargo and then uh, second largest collection agency. So all these things, and then making sure that everyone's coming in is secure. But when you do that, you got to make sure things are uh, looking at not only tactical, which we're, I think, pretty excellent on, but mm -hmm. strategic transformation. And I think, uh, you know, focus on the people. Uh, people have gone through a lot in COVID, in the age of COVID. You know, how do we make sure that they can work remotely and as Raj mentioned, while securely as well. So you got to give them the tools, but we also know the threat the, the threat vectors and the supply chain vectors, including our, our, our industry partners, because they also have a threat and we got to make sure that they can deliver software. But if they're remote, uh, you know, we got to see how that's coming in. As, as you know, what the adversary was doing on SolarWinds, for example, and there are many other examples that I think we can talk about. But I think making sure that these re responsive needs are taken care of. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that our agency also has taken, uh, we're taking, we put, took a 1.2 billion cut last year because right. of the shortfall due to travel, you know. And so as the collection fees are going down, we are having to be more effective and efficient. And I think supporting this faster and best, better mission delivery through our six focus areas, through trusted partnerships is another big deal. We have not only included trusted partnerships within our own, uh, uh, you know, CBP, but also across DHS, across government agencies, sure. across all our industry partners, uh, tens of thousands, by the way, all the 80 countries and, and 5i countries, you know, so I think all of that is this teamwork. And lastly, I'll just say cutting edge technology, a lot of stuff we are preparing for 5G, a lot of robotic process automation. I've got something like uh, 140 projects in that area, 40 in artificial intelligence and ML NLP. So I think all of this stuff coming together I think is really what it is, but let's not all forget about the people. The people have gone through a lot. And I think uh, having uh, not only diversity, equity and inclusion, which by the way, I must compliment that on this panel, you have a quite a lot of that here. So, uh, you know, and I think that really is where uh, you're seeing that American spirit come out and you're seeing the spirit of the government worker come out. Keith, number one priority at the State Department this year for you. Four focus areas, Luke, that I'm looking at. It's really around enabling enterprise technology in our workforce, and at the same time, really establishing a place within the Iron Bureau as a home for our uh, technologists. I mean, we have individuals that they go out for years and, you know, they really uh, support regional bureaus he here and there, and we want them to know that IRM is, is their home. And as we rebrand the organization, really becoming, uh, our workforce really becoming uh, customer obsessed, and uh, really, uh, we have a, a restructuring plan in place uh, to restructure uh, a vintage 1990s um, foreign ops and operations director, really uh, redoing that and making sure it's moving forward and around governance as well, making sure that the IT investments across the department are really strategically aligned and delivering value uh, with uh, having the right re recruitment and outreach of our uh, resources. I think uh, we have to eliminate barriers uh, and power nimble diplomacy as we look to 
uh, forward leaning cloud solutions and mobile architectures. Then I'll say uh, make, make enterprise cybersecurity foundational across the department's infrastructure, the systems, and part of its culture across our workforce. I think as we look at zero trust, establishing our zero trust roadmaps, efforts on cybersecurity sprints uh, that we're doing, continuing our improvement around cyber hygiene and mitigating any vulnerabilities, that's really important. And lastly, uh, I'll say leveraging emerging technologies and making uh, diplomatic data really strategic really an opportunity to move towards a lot of solid uh, predictive analytics versus uh, reacting on things and seeing uh, trends that, that, that may have caused things, but really being proactive and being predictive around what we can anticipate in various areas. Kevin, I'm getting this theme of sort of buttoning up the hatches here. Number one priority for Kevin Cox and uh, the Department of Justice this year. We have a number of modernization initiatives underway. We'll continue to support that, mm -hmm. uh, continue to support these very important mission areas. But uh, returning back to what, uh, what I had said in my earlier response, for us, our number one priority is the overall zero trust rollout. Uh, the, the three legs of that, which is the, the actual implementation of the, in the build out of the zero trust architecture, building out that centralized identity provider, and then getting the endpoint detection and response in place. Uh, that's such a big initiative for us because it touches all parts of our network, all parts of our, our mission areas, and, and we have to be very uh, careful, very uh, diligent in terms of how we implement it because we want to make sure we do not disrupt our important mission work. So that's, that's going to be something that we lean in on, continue to focus on uh, while we're continuing all of our other efforts uh, with the, the modernization of many of our most important systems. Jonathan, number one priority for service now next year. Well, it's supporting all of these really important initiatives we've talked about you know, mm -hmm. through a variety of technologies available on the ServiceNow platform. But you know, I think where I have having most of my conversations these days is around our low-code capabilities. You know, obviously, COVID changed the way that we work. Um, we've had to quickly digitize lots and lots of processes. You know, now we're we're seeing agencies want to uh, make sure that the they have the right processes in place and they recognize the need to have a platform that supports the end-to-end -end digital workflows that are what people are used to working with at this at this present time. One of the one of the places where we're doing uh, quite a lot of this work is with uh, Keith's team at the at the State Department. They've been real champions around uh, low code, done some great work. This is a true and low code's a huge market. It's growing, you know, tremendously, uh, billions and millions of dollars a year. And you know, we we're very proud at ServiceNow with a platform. Um, that we've created in low-code tools. They've been recognized uh, by Gartner in the Magic Quadrant. They're in the Forrester Wave as a uh, report as a uh, as a key component. And you know the the reality is agencies and organizations like need these kinds of capabilities. There just are not enough software developers available to build all the applications people need to work the way we want to work these days. So the the biggest challenge that you know we have, we continue to have this kind of conversation with the uh, with agencies, and we will into the next year. Is how do you set up the right governance and you know guardrails so we can have delegated developers in the mission areas in the program so they can build applications uh, on a low-code platform like ServiceNow. They can meet their mission need. The CIO office isn't the bottleneck. I spent plenty of years as, as a CIO and I took a lot of 
uh, arrows for taking too long. Well, I want to give you tools in the program areas to build the applications you need to meet your mission. And um, we're, we're doing that now. We're going to continue to do that. And I think that's going to be a heavy focus to build those mission workflows uh, that Sonny was talking about and others over, yes. the, over the course of the next year. Nick, how about a pure storage? Number one priority for you all this year. Thanks, Luke. So the focus for the next couple of years for us is expanding digital transformation through connectivity across platforms, transforming data service infrastructure to enable massive scale and performance while making the delivery of those services as autonomous as possible uh, from the core to the edge. So again, I talked earlier about the delivery of data uh, everywhere where it's needed to enable our workforce, our decision makers, uh, to work efficiently and effectively wherever they are. Uh, we're trying to change the thinking of customers and the industry from one of storage as a static function to one of dynamic data service. And that focuses not on banking the data, but leveraging it at the point of need seamlessly and securely, and of course, with tremendous performance. So this focus spans traditional workloads, as well as enabling the adoption of next generation operating frameworks, and particularly container data service in the cloud, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. All of this is enabled by you know, high performance data service and the, the handmaiden to that kind of performance and convenience is making sure you do so securely. So we're also focusing tremendously on everything from the fundamental security of the data itself that we're storing, of uh, the access to the systems, the integration and the security frameworks and certification and accreditation of those capabilities within the government context of SP 800-53, 800-171, um, updating our cryptography to support uh, next generation cryptographic capabilities. All of these things are, are really mundane, routine, and oftentimes taken for granted. But in this day and age, especially with uh, the, the nature and shape of attacks against systems, uh, we've really spent a tremendous amount of effort ensuring that we can help mitigate against those efforts and obviously recover from them as swiftly as possible. So those are our focus areas, essentially improving scale, uh, sustainability, integration, speed, and security. Chris, take us home, BMC. All right, thank priority you. priority for this year. Yeah, thank, thank you, Luke. And, and again, like Jonathan said, our priority is making sure everyone on this call can achieve their priorities. Sonny, you mentioned you had 40 machine learning initiatives coming up. But one of the biggest things that we've been working with our clients on is about how do we make sure that those machine learning initiatives will be successful? There's a lot of stats that a lot of them unfortunately fail. And many times it's because of the data. So we've been taking a strong look at data ops. We have a market leading orchestration automation solution. And we want to expand that to make sure that the data pipelines can be monitored and managed in a way that those machine learning initiatives not, will not just be successful when created, but will remain successful. And we're expanding this pretty far out into the edge. When you take a look at some of the edge technologies out there, you might think of a, you know, an Amazon warehouse, or, or at least I do. But what about operational technology? The F-35 is not a plane, it's a computer with wings. I remember the first time I got on a striker, all the technology allowed me to shoot, move, and communicate. Those are the types of data that we can start building into these pipelines that allow us to really achieve our end state goals that we're trying to achieve with our data initiatives. So that's a big area where BMC wants to make sure that we're uh, your partner and ally in your future initiatives. I really do appreciate everyone taking their time out of their busy schedules and for everything that you do, fighting the good fight, keeping this country safe, uh, focusing on the whole of government and focusing on the people that are supporting all these various areas. So I really do appreciate that. I'd like to thank our sponsors here for supporting us on this show. And I'd like to thank the good people here at Federal News Network that make our program so successful and enjoyable. And most of all, I'd like to thank you, the listening audience that tune in every month. 
You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to the Federal Executive Forum series on Federal News Network. This show was produced by Treza Media Group. If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to the show in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com.